Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is June 16th, 2022. Today's episode, we discuss global threat of nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation, as well as nuclear used as an energy source within the context of alternate energy sources as well. The participants in today's podcast are Rachel Washburn, our head of macro strategy, Peter Chur, our head of ESG, Mike Rodriguez, and one of our geopolitical intelligence group members, Lieutenant General Frank Kearney. General Kearney, Peter Chur, Mike Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to initiate this global discussion focused on nuclear threat, not only from a security perspective, from an economic perspective, but from an ESG and sustainability perspective as well. Today, we have General Kearney, one of Academy's geopolitical advisory board members, our head of macro strategy, Peter Chur, and our head of ESG, Mike Rodriguez. Let's start with Russia. Um Today, we're going to talk about nuclear concerns from an energy perspective, from a security perspective, from a policy perspective. It was obviously something that drove policy and international relations in the 20th century. But while it's top of mind, depending on who, what country we're talking about, nuclear policy and security concerns are not necessarily top of mind until very recently, the last few years, with North Korea uh, building up their nuclear program, obviously Iran constantly top of mind, but with the conflict in Ukraine, there's lots of conversation around, could we see the use, practically speaking, of a nuclear weapon, whether a strategic or tactical nuclear weapon? So General Kearney, I want to hear your point of view at this point in the conflict how do you view that risk? How should we view that risk in the the long term? And you know what what would incentivize or de-incentivize the use of a nuclear weapon in the conflict in Ukraine? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Uh, you know, my view right now is that the risk or the likelihood of weapons of mass destruction use, period, nuclear being the one we're discussing, is still very low. We are not at a point where the Russians don't have an advantage. Now, they have a lot of costs, you know, as a result of losing people, losing equipment, not having success, national prestige. But I don't believe that Putin has prepared the Russian people for the use of a weapon of mass destruction against a like ethnic group that used to be part of the Soviet Union and who they say is really ethnically part of Russia. The soldiers are having a challenge understanding that right now as they fight them on the ground using a nuclear weapon to do that. Uh, is is highly unlikely. Now, there are reasons at, at a certain point in time, should sanctions have a, 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 you know, a, a five to 10 year bite if this continues to go that long, and it certainly has the perspective to do that, that uh, you don't want to break the stalemate. It is Russian doctrine and, and has been for some time to escalate through the use or threat of nuclear weapons to de-escalate, so to bring people to the table. Uh, should we end up with a ceasefire of some sort in uh, Ukraine, you would that would just kind of set the stage for, all right, how do we go forward? What's the world's view of Russia? How do they involve? And if that doesn't come out in Putin's direction, I think then you see, again, this threat of escalation to have a diplomatic lever uh, through the use of military power uh, in order to shape and influence international outcomes. Um, I, I think we've seen that the, they are a paper tiger 
from a military capabilities point of view, but not a military intent. He's more than willing to use military power to achieve political objectives, economic objectives, and world power objectives. So I, I think it's low now. I think it increases uh, at the time that we come to some sort of ceasefire uh, and we have to negotiate what does Russia's relationship with the world look like and is Putin part of it. And then we see another escalation uh, in, in at least rhetoric uh, to do things. Um, some, obviously, they would use them in, in, in diplomatic leverage. They would use them for military targeting. Uh, as we discussed a little bit earlier, they could use it for economic targeting, which would have very, very limited effect on uh, loss of life, infrastructure, those kind of things that have to be rebuilt to make the country viable again. Uh, but I think any use of nuclear weapons at this point uh, just takes uh, the world opinion of Putin in the wrong direction. Uh, and, I, and I think he still hopes for a comeback. You know, he'll have some suggest success. He'll negotiate this away and move forward. Obviously, for much of the Cold War and as different nations were building up their nuclear um, arsenals, mutually assured destruction was a huge part of what kept the peace. Um, at the end of the Cold War, there was a big push to try to limit nuclear proliferation and minimize arsenals. Um, how do you view the the policies post-Cold War till today, how they've impacted the current climate and environment that we're in. As far as, I mean, ex specifically speaking with Ukraine possessing no nuclear weapons. I mean, certainly you can see the result of not having a nuclear deterrent as a sovereign nation who had one previously as part of the, you, you know, the Soviet republics. But uh, so they've, they've lost the ability uh, and leverage to be able to react uh, to Putin in that regard. Post-Cold War, the policy kind of was much more towards reduction of nuclear weapons, uh, working together uh, as a global community to eliminate the threat. I mean, I think Michael sent some statistics around that show we've gone down from 50,000 to about 12,700 nuclear weapons uh, that are active today in the nine countries that have them. But nuclear policy, other than Iran, other than North Korea, uh, in, in India, Pakistan, where there's always been this big threat because of uh, terrorism creating an escalation, uh, we, we haven't spent a lot of time paying attention to it, though in the last 10 years we have seen the Russians begin a modernization program. We've seen them change their doctrinal use. We've seen them go to lower yield nuclear weapons, which makes them far more usable. Uh, and as a result, you see the world reacting. And now with this particular threat, We've kind of cemented the multi-trillion dollar uh, investment that now will occur over the next 20 years in modernizing the nuclear triad here in the United States. Uh, the UK plans to go up from 120 uh, deployed warheads to 180. Uh, Pakistan, China, and uh, India are all increasing. So what has been a sleepy period because even with India, Pakistan, the United States was a broker through terrorism to be able to balance that. But India's worry about China. Uh, you know, so what we now have is real geopolitical issues amongst nuclear power players in fear uh, that, that they are much more hegemonic than they were in the past. You know, China, and, China as one and Russia as another. The question mark becomes the Iran's, who is clearly... Uh, hegemonic out there, but still hasn't moved towards nuclear uh, weaponization, though they could be days away from having enough 
uh, highly enriched uranium at about 90% to be able to make a nuclear weapon. Crafting one is a challenge. Mating it to a missile system is a challenge. But all that's the science is there. It's easy enough to learn. So I think we went through a sleepy period. We've seen as Putin has changed and as, uh, uh, you know, Jinping there in China has changed. You've seen that escalatory effort on the part of them to dominate space in the world, both economically and militarily. And we see the rise of nuclear threat uh, going along with that, a corresponding increase in the amount of weapons being produced. Uh, and in the United States, refurbishment uh, of uh, and life extension to most of our systems, which are which are quite old, actually, compared to uh, our competitors who've built them uh, much later. Do you have the sense that there's a political and public will to properly modernize America's nuclear capacity? I think for a long time we weren't there. And I would say until recently we were not there. I mean, there was even debate as to whether or not, you know, when I was in uniform in 2012, and then the next five years following that, whether we should reduce from a triad to a dyad, uh, whether we needed intercontinental ballistic missiles and those kind of things. One of the things you have to understand in modernization missile numbers, warhead numbers, is you need to put the adversary's uh, launch capability under threat, which means we have a lot of silos. They don't all have missiles in them. It means that Russia and China have to worry about how do I target the entire spectrum. We have a lot of them deployed on submarines, which are difficult uh, to move. We have a lot that are deployed at air bases to be able to be air launched, uh, a lot on ships. So the idea is mutually assured destruction was based on targeting every silo, every system with a corresponding nuclear warhead. And that exchange would uh, actually create, uh, you know, the the, the global thermal nuclear winter uh, that we all remember reading about. But, you know, we have to remember that we've had a lot of above ground tests over time and the world still exists with a lot of nuclear radiation that was released. You know, you had the Chernobyl release, the Fukushima release. Those all have negative aspects. And even though, you know, U-238, I mean, which is the base stable uranium isotope, I mean, the half-life is 238 years. That's what that 238 means. Uh, you know, we, there's enough space in the world. We did, we did most of our testing on atolls out in the, uh, out in the islands, uh, but a lot of underground stuff. Now we don't need to test. Uh, so I, I think our policies uh, are, are moving in a direction that um, we are worried about the threat. We are worried about modernization. The other thing people need to understand is the atrophy of weapons systems. You know, those nuclear warheads uh, are being analyzed all the time by the nuclear, you know, National Nuclear Safety uh, Agency, NNSA, and they maintain that. They also take the ones that we retire. uh, They look at those, deconstruct them, save the special nuclear material and other parts to do things. But uh, most of these are electrically fired systems that compress special nuclear material to achieve critical mass with uh, different elements in there that excite the nuclear reaction and create an increased reaction uh, beyond what would naturally occur in a fission fusion uh, type reaction. So all those things deteriorate over time. And so we test and and the yield of our weapon systems is an estimate based on where they are in their life cycle. Now the Trident nuclear missile, uh, you know, I actually work with a, with a company who has the life extension program for that and has been modernizing that program. 
Uh, and so, you know, it's an active program, and I think people are very, very comfortable with a nuclear uh, program in the Navy, uh, probably a lot less so when you see things uh, about weapon systems moving around and being on airplanes and nobody knowing it, I mean, which is why, why NNSA was, was created. So I, I think we're moving in the right direction. I think for a long time, the Democratic Party did not support that uh, politically. Uh, I think um, that we, we, we've changed and moved in a direction that says the threat demands that we have a, a deterrent. Well, before we move past Russia, Ukraine, Peter, I want to get you involved in this conversation because we've over the years when we start discussing nuclear risk based off of who's acting up around the world at the time, I've asked you, is does the market properly assess that risk? And you've often answered, you know, it's so existential. How do you even begin to evaluate it? So how do you view the threat? presently, and please share some of your interesting views on how you view threats specifically to the war in Ukraine. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rachel. I think more and more I'm seeing this kind of global competition for commodities, and there's a nuclear aspect to that, I think, in several ways. One is we talked a little bit about what is the potential for Russia to use some sort of tactical nuke in a, you know, very sparsely populated area, but to impact some sort of natural resource, whether it's crops or whether it's some sort of metal or even some sort of natural gas where the damage is physically done not only at the time but through radiation you potentially destroy that commodity for 10 20 30 years or more and could that sort of thing be played out i think you're seeing it even with iran right where we are having to kind of change some of our stances with iran because we are now desperate for their oil right so our own policies i think left us short on oil and commodities and the it's shaping all these competitions across the globe. Um, you know, I do think we're going to see more and more of a push towards using uranium and nuclear power. I think you've seen that shift in Germany, I think. But across the board, we're going to have to shift on how do we think about these nuclear powers and how do we think about commodities? How do we ensure that we have safety here? It really does, I think, change what we're going to be able to do. I think it has to influence our own policy. I'm thinking more and more about in these kind of commodity wars, we have a lot of natural resources, but right now we we won't allow ourselves to dig for some of it or mine it or pull it out of the ground. And I think we're going to have to reassess what are our kind of red lines in here because this nuclear proliferation, this use of nuclear, I think is overseeing a lot, and we've got to be prepared for shocks to the system. And I think that's something, even market participants, I think it's still an incredibly low probability, but it's gone from, okay, this is kind of crazy, we should completely ignore the risk, to we have to be thinking about this as real. What could Russia do? What would that impact be? At what point, what does Iran do? Does Israel react to the potential of Iran doing something? So these have gone from really kind of side by our far-fetched conversations to people starting to think about it a little bit more. And a lot, I think, comes into the ability to you know participate in the commodity markets and look for things there. And I think in the military space, if you're looking at investing, you know, which companies are going to benefit from this refocus on this technology and the prevention of its use. General Kearney, before we move on to the the softer side of nuclear, so to speak, from an energy perspective, I want to hear what your uh, thoughts are on what's happening with North Korea. Um, a ton of activity. How do you view the intent behind that activity and the, you know, how close are we to seeing them test a nuclear weapon? 
Yeah, I think the at least reports in the news the you know they've opened the edits and the things uh, in the in the different test facilities. So they're opened up. They they are capable now of going through a test. Normally we can detect that pretty much uh, and have a good idea when and how uh, that will occur. North Korea's nuclear program is not just the nuclear piece, it's the delivery system. And in fact, they do far more testing of, uh, of, of delivery systems through uh, missile technology than, uh, than they do nuclear tests. They are not sophisticated enough like we are and other nations to be able to do just a scientific assessment through analysis of the warheads and things like that to ensure they, they work. But more importantly, having a nuclear uh, detonation and a demonstration is a source of pride uh, inside of North Korea that is reportedly ridden with, uh, uh, you know, COVID, uh, doesn't want to admit it. The people are, are suffering as a result of that. So a, a typical technique by the, uh, you know, the Kim family is to use militarization, military threats and testing as a way to uh, overcome internal uh, challenges in, in the country. We also see uh, our, our policy to China has a lot of the, um, the bilateral uh, agreements that we have with Japan, Australia, and some of the other nations that we are looking to economically target uh, China. Those, Korea looks at those as the same threat. Okay, so the bringing together of the Western Pacific Alliance is not just a China issue, it's a North Korea issue. And we can take those two as one uh, alliance block, but uh, you know, China, North Korea wants to be heard, needs their their program, and still obviously looking to build up. Just not not unlike what uh, Russians' nuclear policy is, is escalate to de-escalate. So if you take it up to a threshold level, will people talk to me in the world? Will I get humanitarian assistance? Will I get aid? Uh, will I be able to get the uh, the natural resources I need to be able to survive as a nation? So that's that's kind of how I read it. Uh, depending on how you look at North Korea, they have 10 to, to 20 uh, nuclear warheads. They have the capability to make uh, many more. But at the you know at the end of the day, their problem is mating a proper warhead with a missile to reach the United States uh, with accurate targeting to be able to hold us under diplomatic leverage uh, to be able to come to the table. Uh, they're, they're never going to get rid of their nuclear program. I think that's that's pretty obvious. So having nuclear uh, reduction talks with them or nuclear status quo talks would be the best we can we can hope for. But uh, you know they, they've got a powerful ally in China uh, as as they look at that uh, and, and really uh, the enemy of my enemy. So the Russians, everybody out there, kind of comes together and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, so I, I think North Korea is is blustering for internal support and then messaging the Biden administration uh, about all the different policies in, the, in you know, Asia Pacific that uh, affect China, affect North Korea as well. And we often refer to North Korea as a rogue state. Do you think them becoming a nuclear capable nation will change how they interact with the global stage? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think it will. I mean, I think the dictatorship there is focus very much on survival first of uh, the dictatorship. The interesting thing for, for North Korea is always transition. So when, uh, you know, the, the latest Kim it was in, in ill health, we were worried about who would come next. Will the military take over? Uh, he came in after, uh, after a, a period of uh, dispute, consolidated power. It will be interesting to see who the next generation 
uh, will produce of leadership in, in North Korea. But I, they, they are a nuclear power. I mean, I think we, we need to understand that. They have the capability to launch one. The accuracy is, is something different. But no, I don't think they change. I think they, uh, they use that tool with more leverage in the international community to try to get things done. I think it's a nice pivot point to discuss Iran um, before moving on to Mike and a little bit more with Peter around uh, nuclear energy and sustainability, because for for so long, Iran's um, justification for their nuclear program was was focused on energy. Um, we can take that at you know, a face value if we want or not, but um, Iran popping up in the news more often about, you know, taking away monitoring systems and we're still working on trying to do a revised JCPOA. How do you view the current threat with regard to Iran and then obviously the players in the region that are um, strongly against Iran becoming nuclearized? Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, the, the, the opportunity for escalation in nuclear proliferation uh, with a successful Iranian nuclear program continues to increase. Uh, one, they have enough 60% enriched uranium to make a bomb should they choose over days and weeks to go to HEU levels of 90% risk, which is what you need to be able to, uh, to have the nuclear material to have a bomb that will, will work uh, the way you would like it to. They've been testing missile technology uh, all along, and so they have that capability to do things. Iran, like Russia, would probably choose to use a very low-yield nuclear weapon. So they would want to build one, and they have the missile technology that they could put one on there uh, to, to be able to, to do those kind of things. So what does that do if Iran moves uh, to break out, becomes a nuclear power? Uh, they probably will not test so much like Israel, who is a undeclared nuclear power, testing would cause the Iranian government uh, big challenges, uh, increased sanctions, and, and it would start a cascade of potential effects. Of course, we always talk about uh, Israel using direct capability. Israel's arsenal of aircraft and the ability to carry ordnance is not sufficient to destroy Iran's nuclear facilities. They can take care of certain things. They can close down accesses. They can set the program back. There's only one country in the world that can eliminate that, and we're not even sure whether we can do that uh, with some of the platforms we have. But we, you know, you need at least a 25,000-pound ordinance drop in there, probably with multiple hits, to be able to go and do damage there. And again, that's the United States, the only only nation capable of doing that. And you have to suppress the air defense systems enough to have multiple hits. The Israelis would sneak in, do something real quick, and then we have this escalating challenge that occurs. And this is where there's always tension between the United States and Israel on how to deal with Iran. Uh, what is already happening and what would happen, I think, which the Saudis have the capability to buy nuclear capability from the Pakistan on Pakistanis on a moment's notice. They have they've been looking at that. There's been all kinds of discussions and topics and behind closed room doors. So rapid access to nuclear weapons to be delivered by aircraft in Saudi Arabia uh, would just take the transfer, uh, you know, of a warhead. Even though that is a challenge, uh, it'll occur. But you will see, and you already are seeing, nuclear power in the Middle East for desalinization. 
uh, of salt water is a, is a huge requirement, and it is becomes the predicate then for proliferation and the ability to create a nuclear program, much like Iran has done, uh, to be able to, uh, to to build the capability over time to create their own nuclear uh, programs to do things. So I think that's the worry. The worry here is escalation by not a rogue actor, but an Israeli actor who will act in their own defense. I, I come back again. I mean, Israel is so small that using a nuclear weapon on Israel really presents the same danger to the Arab nations that are around it, which has driven the political coalition that you see, uh, you know, Jared Kushner has been able to put together with the Abraham Accords is really all about the enemy of my enemy. None of them all like each other, uh, but they recognize that as a coalition, they can present a greater threat uh, to the Iranians. And they also recognize that if Israel's targeted, uh, you know, Syria, Lebanon, you know, uh, Jordan are all in uh, the plume for radioactive fallout, especially, you know, with a, with a decent sized nuke, you know, and, and they're normally easier to make bigger, not smaller. Uh, you have, you know, 30 to 35 miles of almost complete destruction based on, you know, fire, wind, storm. It, but then the, the radiation plume based on in a belt of westerlies and whatever the weather pattern is, it's going to go in and have an impact on the other Arab nations. So it's uh, it's it's an interesting construct to even think that Iran would consider using that. But it's the threat, really, uh, of nuclear power that uh, is, is seriously working. And deterrence is kind of failing when we take a look at what's going on with Russia. It's failing with what's going on with North, North Korea, and it's failing with what's going on uh, with, uh, with Iran. So I think the United States and the West needs to take a look at our deterrence policy. Our sanctions haven't deterred it. Uh, the threat of uh, retaliatory actions uh, haven't, hasn't deterred it. Uh, and, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is or you don't get there from here. And there's been a great reticence to do anything against nuclear programs uh, and worry about nuclear release through bombing or, or other things, uh, the uranium hexafluoride gas, which is in the Cascades and all those things. So, uh, yeah, it, it is probably the most volatile area from an action, reaction, counter reaction, unintended consequences uh, coming out of uh, this program becoming more mature. All right, Mike. Uh, obviously, the backdrop to the current conflict in Ukraine has energy concerns, resource concerns written all over it. We're already living at a time where people are looking for different um, cleaner, renewable sources of energy. And we've often said, you know, nuclear fits that bill. It just has terrible marketing for all the reasons that we've just spent the, discussing for the last 30 minutes, plus obviously some really tragic accidents around um, nuclear power facilities. So what do you hear your point of view about where you see uh, nuclear fitting into the ESG landscape, um, how you think of it, how people could think of it, and how the current current security and geopolitical environment um, influences all of that. Copy that, Rachel. Um, you know, that's a it's a really good technology, and I mean not a good technology, but good question. Um, the technology, you know, has been around for some time, and I think as you know, right now, coming in or within this conflict, it's got a lot of people questioning, you know. How are we going to, you know, reach the capacity for the demand that is really where we're headed in the future? Even, you know, even if we're regardless of electric vehicles, if you look at some of the recent IEA's assessments here in the U.S., you know, energy, there is 
suspected growth or going to be increased demand, especially after 2030 for for energy and capacity here in the U.S. And we're going to have to be very creative in how we look to meet that, especially with concerns around climate change, um, the broader environment, and and some other issues. But this again, this has folks thinking. We've really seen, I think, some reaction in Europe from this. Uh, they have their green instrument taxonomy, and earlier this year, uh, coming out of or the beginnings of this uh, this conflict, they had put out some new guidance specifically on uh, nuclear energy and natural gas, and they're, I think, reconsidering this as an option, especially going forward up into 2045, in which they've extended nuclear energy certain. Gener- certain types of generators and technologies that could be included on this, as well as modifications to existing uh, nuclear generation capacity that can improve it. Um, the other change has been in natural gas, and I think this has been part of this continued discussion as natural gas as a transitory energy um, uh, resource as we look to become more renewable. And in the EU, you know, which really tends to lead on a lot of this uh, policy and decisions, they, you know, they're looking to include natural gas as part of a, a, a green investment as long as it's within um, certain emissions uh, capacities. I think for one instance, I think it's 100 grams of CO2 uh, equivalent per kilowatt hour generated. So if you can generate natural gas that is that emits emissions less than that, then that's okay as a green investment. So I think they're looking to open this up when we get into times of, of, of stress of what we're coming to or crunches when you have somebody like Russia, which is a massive energy uh, producer, is now sort of being uh, you know boxed out of the situation in places like Ukraine, which are sent, you know are critical to the transport of natural gas to places like Europe, are in conflict. Um, I, I think this brings to question brings to mind just you know we need to be flexible and diverse in our energy use, which is really important. I think considering new technology around nuclear is going to be um, you know is going to be critical to that. Uh, it might be something we have to open up to as well. Um, in terms of my thoughts and just the, you know, we were speaking earlier about, you know, repatriating a lot of maybe resources here in the United States, resource extraction, maybe things like lithium or other issues that were, or minerals that were going to be needed to, to meet these um, goals around climate and domestic energy production. But, you know, nuclear might also have to, to be part of that as well um, as we look to consider it here. Um, you know, I, I knew U.S. is actually one of the, uh, you know, one of the largest energy producers here in the, in the in the globe. And, you know, will that, as it stands, be able to meet the demand with electric vehicles and all of that? But going back to it, we'll have to really look at what we're doing here in the United States, diversifying and being flexible on how we consider this. Uh, but, you know, maybe taking a step back things that we're going to have to consider with this technology, I think more specifically, you know, as we look to repatriate things here or resource extraction or development, we're also going to have to simultaneously consider, well, you know, as we bring these back here, what are the environmental concerns and maybe incorporate lessons from the past, especially from the from the 19th and early 20th century, where we were sort of very new on extracting a lot of these and some hard lessons were learned then. And that's why we developed the EPA. So as we bring these back in, you know, whether that's lithium mining or palladium, certain critical minerals that are available here domestically, as well as the production of certain technologies, we're, we're going to have to, I, I think, really integrate 
you know, maybe some of these environmental concerns, which, you know, is going to be a balancing act. Uh, but to that extent, I think diverse and flexible energy supply is really important and is something that you, you can't overlook. Um, and given the focus on emissions and other things, they might have to we might have to reevaluate those in certain technologies as we come up to certain challenges like conflicts with Ukraine or maybe further down the road, maybe issues with China and supply chain access to technology. You know, it'll be a balancing act. Any thoughts on those final comments from General Kearney on where opportunity can exist from an ESG lens as it relates to nuclear power? I think there's a lot of, you know, there's lots of talks on, you know, what's the potential energy that exists out there from a renewable perspective. So we we actually we have energy out there that you can capture right now with the technology that we have on hand. And then there are calculations around, all right, what's the potential energy out there that we could look to capture? Um, you know, folks have talked about, uh, there's been discussions around, you know, using tidal energy. There's certainly been developments there. You know, maybe we could look to use more wind energy, it'll really be likely less of one particular source, but having a di- really diverse base that you can draw upon when you when you get into an energy crunch. But it's something that we really need to, to be considering right now, just given we're already in like a current energy crunch. We saw what happened um, in Texas not too long ago when during the, the winter storm there. We're also seeing parts of the nation where during the summertime, you have everyone using increased air conditioning and those compressors to, to for that air conditioning for just uh, for good living so you're not heating up. And we've seen a lot of stress on the grid for those. Um, and in the Netherlands already, they're, they're talking, their grid is having some issues too. And, you know, in Europe, they're leaders on renewable energy. So, and one of the challenges, of course, with renewable energy is, you know, the intermittency of it. And until we can get to the battery storage and, the the scale scaling that it's going to be uh i think a balancing act oh, maybe at times we're going to have to switch to natural gas or use nuclear or maybe go go more to hydroelectric but hydroelectric is going to pose its challenges as we're talking about increased um times of drought and heat index as well uh, rachel if i could uh, make a couple of comments uh, you know one of the companies i work with is doing a lot of research in space and obviously as part of the artemis program uh, to build a gateway uh, satellite that will operate completely off solar energy, colonize the moon, which will operate completely off solar energy. So one of the things that will happen as a result of space exploration, you know, as we move towards Artemis and going to Mars, is solar power will uh, be tested in ways that we haven't used it. But of course, you know, how do we harness it and bring it back through the atmosphere uh, you know, in some sort of photonic beams or lasers or things like that. There is a lot of research going on uh, in that regard right now to transfer that solar energy, uh, which is very much more powerful outside the atmosphere, through the atmosphere and in. Secondly, I mean, the, the Navy, one of the things we failed to advertise is the Navy has run a nuclear power program without incident since uh, its inception. Uh, and it has figured out how to do those things as we as we go through things. And uh, those those ships, you know, one of the things people don't understand, we send aircraft carriers to disaster areas because they have power, they have water, they have doctors, not because it's a warship, but because we've created a nuclear-powered emergency response vehicle uh, that can go out and do things. So the 
the history of successful nuclear power production resides in the United States Navy, and we should be advertising that. Uh, the last thing I'd say is the hiccup to nuclear power is waste, nuclear waste. What do you do with it? I mean, that's what stopped the Yucca Mountain piece. Uh, so, but we're not doing research uh, enough on those what would be political uh, problems that can be solved by scientific research. And so you kind of, you know, as we look to uh, where do you invest in, in ESG investments, it's who's doing the research to figure out how to break down nuclear waste uh, so that it is something that is acceptable in the world. How are we, you know, working to, uh, to move solar energy uh, in a different manner down to the planet, things like that. Um, there's small amounts of money doing those kind of things, but it will take large commercial capital investment, uh, in my view, to make that happen. Um, uh, you know, much like the space program now has become commercialized, uh, and the government can't afford to do the things that we need to do. Over. Well, I think that might be a perfect uh, place to close with Peter. Um, any thoughts on those final comments from General Kearney and where opportunity exists? Yeah, I, I think um, we had a really interesting call with one of the energy companies to do business with. And what I liked about how they're talking about it, they've gone from talking about transitioning to energy to transforming energy. And I think maybe that's the right way to think about this. It's not how do we transition to cleaner energy or renewable. How do we transform our energy needs and our energy sources? And I think that's going to be a little bit more of a holistic approach. And I just kind of like that it captures, I think, much more. And it doesn't necessarily create this good energy versus bad energy. I think it lets us be a little bit more realistic that we have to transform how we use energy, but also how we get it, what types of energy we're getting, and incorporate more broadly these things. So I, I think we're going to see you know, a lot more work done on how to deal with nuclear. Like you say, I think people had kind of let it go to the side and people weren't, what do we do with the waste? Maybe there are good ways. Maybe it's something, again, you'd hate to think of the idea that we just ship our nuclear waste off to space, but if that became a safe way to do it, maybe there's things like that that we have to explore, and it's going to have to be this transformation. And I think realistically, we really are almost at war for commodities with the world, and we have to figure out how we address our own safety and needs in this. And I think you know that's one place that China's way ahead of us, right? China not only develops their own resources, they are willing to refine the resources, even where maybe there's risk of pollution, et cetera. And they've got a head start on us in a lot of these things. And I think we have to go back and figure out how do we want to transform our independence on this under the assumption now that there are bad powers out there, that Russia, Iran, um, North Korea could all do something that could be very detrimental. And I think this kind of idea that there's, they could even target something like commodities is something we really have to be thinking about. So I, I like this kind of thought that was put in my head that it's now about transformation rather than transition. And I still believe, and we talked about this over a year and a half ago, that the energy companies of the past are probably going to be the energy companies of the future. And I think there's still a lot of upside from that industry. And you really want to look at where the innovation's going. Um, you know, probably the most profound thing I ever heard at a conference was in 2000, Michael Milken went through biotech versus big pharma. And his whole point there was you could buy the entire biotech industry for a fraction of big pharma, and yet the resources being spent on research were massive at biotech relative to big pharma. And I think as we as investors are here, we're supposed to be looking at 
who is spending the research dollars, who has the research technology, who has the research people, and is devoting themselves to the right types of things. And I think that falls into also the military side, where we're looking at defense contractors. Who is getting a head start on the things that are going to be shaping the future, rather than maybe those who are too dependent on how we used to behave? So that's kind of what I'm looking at is, where's that research being driven? And the one good thing is you know, the market turmoil over the past year, a lot of these kind of disruptive type companies that may show potential are at much cheaper prices. So I think as an investor, you've got this opportunity to pick through kind of the mess that's been made of markets over the past six months and pick up some interesting things where we're really looking at where the future is and who has those resources and is spending the research on the right places. General Kearney, just what you're saying on the safety of 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 U.S. nuclear um, reactors on our in our as part of our fleets, I think it's important just to look at it more broadly across you know actual um, energy-related disasters and incidents. And you know I'll bring this up. This is a bit of history here, but the largest energy-related disaster outside, if we extract a weaponized incident like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, is actually um, the Bankau Dam disaster in China in the 1970s. Over 100,000 people had died. It was a series of of flooding that resulted in these dams that were set up in a cascading manner had overflowed. It's, 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 and then of course you had third and secondary deaths related to just the fallout of you know this area being flooded and the disease. Um, second to that, you know, you have some, some you know, these nat- natural gas is a very volatile. We had seen that in Massachusetts, but you don't really see that at the level outside of Chernobyl and Fukushima. You know, those two incidences. Um, there's a couple other Three Mile Island, um, which, you know, we've learned a lot of lessons from, but uh, nothing major like Chernobyl or Fukushima. And then there's a couple incidents that occurred um, as part of the in, in um, England as well. But the only real big ones are the Fukushima and uh, and as well as a uh, as a uh, Chernobyl, but the largest energy-related disaster is a hydroelectric, you know, dam-related one. So I think that brings back just the the importance of what General Kerry is saying was the this technology. Two is the the transforming of energy, and I think this is something I'm seeing a lot in the sustainability space. These energy companies are some of the leaders in carbon capture technology, which, you know, you'd say 10 or 15 years ago, people would have sort of laughed at. They would say, ah, that's it. But, you know, there's been a lot of developments, um, different types of carbon capture technology, and they're some of the ones who are really leading the investment in that, as well as when you're talking about the sustainable development of fuels, investments in certain membranes that make developing maybe things like natural gas or petroleum more efficient and less uh, reliable on water or the like. But I think those speak, those two issues, I think, speak to mind one of what General Kearney was saying on the sort of the safety and resilience of nuclear energy and where we've gotten it. And two is what Peter was saying is how companies are looking to maybe transform energy as opposed to transition. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, everyone, for participating in this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time today. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, train, and hire military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you would like to engage with our team directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.